0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Here goes. Do you ever get that feeling when you shiver even though you're not cold and like you feel that shock run up and down your spine and there's that vague sense of dread, but you're not really sure what's wrong? All of a sudden you'll walk into a room and something's just off. This past year, there was a time where I felt like that almost every day. And when I told my parents about it, they said that I was anxious.
0: I did notice this year, your first year of high school, that you worked so hard. I know you were just really motivated to do well and and you did do well, but you did get yourself into a bit of a state, especially around... Um, assignment and exam time. One thing I do notice, and I am the same, Ty, is that when you get anxious and really hyper-focused on your work, um, you forget to eat. So one of the things that dad and I have to make sure we do is like call you up out of the basement and feed you.
1: I agree. I think sometimes when you get anxious about school work or something like that, um, you have a tendency to really become engulfed by it. And so it's a matter of trying to help pull you out. I mean, I felt stressed out before, but this felt new. And unlike when you're tired or when you're hungry, you couldn't just push it down. It always just kind of lingers. And if you're noticing how hesitant I am, that's because this isn't the easiest thing for me to talk about. I'm usually a pretty chipper person, and I also consider myself quite logical, so when there's something happening to me that I can't control or don't really get, I feel kind of out of my element. And I don't love showing people this side of me, but I still wanted to know. Is it just me, or... Do my friends also get anxious?
0: Yes. Yes. During
1: the yeah. school year. Yeah,
0: Yeah, school stresses me out a lot.
2: Like, no matter the subject, like, I just get anxious. School, yes, for me, and also COVID. I feel like I am definitely kind of a germaphobe now because of COVID. Like, I don't like to go in my room with clothes that I wore on the subway, or uh, I make sure that I wash my hands constantly. They said
1: it's a feeling that's been ramping up in the last couple of years. I mean, obviously there's the pandemic. For many Canadians, the pandemic has unpacked a real struggle with loneliness, anxiety, depression, and honestly, just trying to get enough sleep. So joining me- I mean, tonight, we have it's Dr. already anxiety inducing enough to just be a teen with the pressures of school, how hard it can be to maintain friendships and having to navigate awkward social situations. masks and virtual school on top of that? Let's just say it hasn't been easy. But it's not just COVID-19 that's causing the spike. Even in the before times, and of course I'm referring to the pre-COVID times, children's health researchers in the U.S. found a 20% increase in anxiety diagnoses in kids and teens. On one hand, I'm really glad I'm not the only person who goes through these spells, but it also gave me more questions. Like, why does it have to feel so awful? Can't it just be like an itch where it comes and goes? And why can't I turn it off when I know nothing bad is happening? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you really want to have answered. Are we alone in the universe? How reliable are our memories? Why do we love junk food so much? How do animals know where they're going? And what can I do when I'm anxious? My friends say their bodies also do weird things when they're feeling really stressed.
2: I used to bite my nails a lot. And then, like, always in the summer, they grow long because I don't get anxious since there's no school. But since COVID, like, I I find myself biting them a lot when I'm anxious. Um, For me, I get, like, really bad cramps. <laughs> it's weird, like, if I get, if I'm super anxious or I just, like, I guess I'm just stressed. Like, sometimes my um neck will, like, get really tight and I'll have to, like, kind of roll it around. But, yeah. If I'm super
3: anxious, uh, I I get like really bad headaches, and then I also feel
1: nauseous, and then I'll also get like my spine will feel warm and tingly. I'm kind of blown away by how differently our bodies react.
2: I feel lots of things. For one, my heart starts beating really rapidly, and my breathing gets really shallow and fast. Depending on what the stressor is, I might even get butterflies in my stomach.
1: That's Adia Sphinx-Franklin. She's a developmental behavioral pediatrician and an associate professor of pediatrics for Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Here's how she explains anxiety.
2: Anxiety is a very normal human reaction to stressful situations, and it is there for our survival. So that our brains can tell the difference between safe situations and in situations where we should be more cautious.
1: So, I mean, I just, I don't really get why anxiety has to be such a, such an uncomfortable experience. Like I know it's for our survival, but it's really
2: unpleasant. It is. Well, it's because that your body's reaction to the anxiety is to get you ready to either fight to fly or run away from it, or to just to freeze up. If you think historically, way back in the caveman times, anxiety that was there to protect humans from predators, like, for example, a saber-toothed tiger. You had to either fight the tiger, run from the tiger, or lay down and play dead. And when your brain sets off this cascade of events in your body, your pupils dilate, your heart begins to beat more rapidly so that you get more blood to your muscles and to your brain and to your lungs. Your lungs breathe more quickly. So you get more oxygen into your muscles and then your muscles are ready for whatever action needs to take place to protect you, right? So that's appropriate when you're out there with a grizzly bear. But if you're sitting in your classroom and your teacher gives you a math test and you don't feel like you're prepared for that math test and you have that same number of symptoms in your body, all of those stress hormones are coursing through your body and you feel so incredibly uncomfortable because in that moment you can't fight, you can't fly away and you can't necessarily freeze up and shut down. So something that is adaptive for survival in one setting can become maladaptive or something that isn't helpful in another setting. If I was
1: caveman time and I felt that shiver in my body, it'd be a pretty good sign that I was in some danger and need to protect myself. But it's kind of an oversized reaction when my saber-toothed tiger is really just an English test. but then why can it be so hard to turn off even when I know that I'm like not in any danger?
2: Good question. Well, that depends on what we call exposure. In other words, how frequently are you in a dangerous situation? What is the likelihood that you may be placed in that dangerous situation again, right? So your brain learns patterns of what your life is like. And if dangerous situations come up on a regular basis, then those coping strategies and survival instincts in the brain become imprinted in the brain. And that's very hard to turn off because your brain is anticipating this is going to happen again.
1: Like tests and projects and assignments, which just keep piling up and might eventually decide the course of my future. But there are also more tangible and immediate dangers that some teens go through. And that conditions their brains to feel anxiety all the time. So what happens in the brain when someone gets anxious a lot or for like long periods of time?
2: There is a region of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is what some people refer to as the inner cave man or the inner cave woman. The job of the amygdala is to survey for possible danger. And if it senses danger, then it sends out signals to the rest of the brain to get ready to either fight, fly, or freeze. So what happens is, when your amygdala is triggered, your brain becomes laser-focused on whatever it takes to survive that particular situation. And what that means is when you live in a situation where there's high levels of stress for a prolonged period of time, then the amygdala actually grows larger. It grows larger than it is supposed to because it's being overused. And over time, what happens is that amygdala is constantly discharging stress signals to the brain. And it shuts down the frontal lobe which is responsible for thinking and problem solving and decision making, having impulse control or self-control, emotional regulation and being organized. It also shuts down regions of the hippocampus that are responsible for learning and memory. So a person who experiences prolonged toxic levels of stress is more likely to have difficulties concentrating, more difficulties making decisions, They have more difficulties learning new information. They may not perform as well in school. They may have difficulty solving problems in social relationships and getting along with people. So
1: you're saying that being anxious for prolonged periods of time is
2: actually changing the power dynamic in your brain? That's right. It also, over time, can change your DNA, which is your basic genetic material in every cell of your body, the way it expresses itself. And that puts a person at higher risk for even having serious medical problems in the future, such as having heart disease or diabetes or cancer. Isn't that amazing that something that was originally in our brains to protect us, that if it is overused, becomes dangerous for our brains. Adia
1: says being stressed and nervous sometimes is different from feeling anxious all the time. That's what doctors like her would call an anxiety disorder, and
2: it can happen to anyone. An anxiety disorder happens when a person cannot control their worrying. They become very easily stressed and they cannot calm themselves down.
1: Chronic stress is just one of the many ways the brain can become anxious over time. But you don't have to go through stressful events to experience anxiety.
2: Now, if anxiety disorders run through your family, then that increases a teen's risk of actually having an anxiety disorder because there's a genetic component to it.
1: If my, if my parents had anxiety... does does that mean that like I could have it too?
2: So that's kind of a complicated question, Ty. So that's a part of the nature component. The nurture component is the household you grow up in and how do you observe your parents responding to their stress and anxiety? What are your parents' coping mechanisms? How do they teach you how to cope with your stress and anxiety? So parents can have anxiety that have incredibly very adaptive and appropriate ways of managing their stress so the children learn effective ways of coping with stress. And just because you have a gene for something in your DNA doesn't mean you're going to develop that particular condition.
1: I have to ask, I've read a lot of newspaper headlines and papers that say that teens are more anxious now than ever before. Do you think that that's true?
2: A lot of us in the field of developmental behavioral pediatrics have talked about this. So anxiety disorders aren't anything new. However, I think there are several factors that are contributing to the the perceived increased prevalence of anxiety disorders in kids and adolescents today. Part of it is just heightened awareness. So more people in the general public are learning about anxiety as a thing. The second thing is the advent of social media. There has been a correlation or connection between the amount of time that kids, teenagers, and adults spend on social media and their symptoms of anxiety and depression and with the content of social media there's more information about anxiety disorders and anxiety through social media and through a lot of websites on the internet some people self-diagnose that doesn't mean they actually have the condition but we are seeing more and more uh, teenagers coming to the doctor for an evaluation for their anxiety symptoms that are interfering with how well they function. Another factor are the expectations in society for the performance of our teens. So if you want to get into a good college, for example, there's a lot of demands of what you have to do. There's a lot more demands on adolescents now in societies than there were, for example, when I was a teenager back in the 1980s.
1: That's true. Recently, I've been getting really stressed over school and my friends are, too. Like, I'm having to worry about my college applications and what I want to do when I grow up. And I'm just, I'm thinking, since I'm 15 now, my brain is still growing and connecting. Oh, it's
2: beautiful. Ty, your brain is just pruning. I can just hear it. Just all these connections coming up. It's just a beautiful thing, sir. Thank you. But,
1: <laughs> like, will it will it end up getting better at anxiety? Will I, Will my connections learn to just calm myself down? And do you think teens are kind of not as good as dealing with anxiety as
2: adults? Being a teenager is really exciting for your nervous system. There is so much restructuring going on that it's not even funny. So you have this massive, what's called pruning that is happening in the adolescent brain between the ages of about 12 and 16. And what that means is your brain is becoming specialized. So it uses and it increases the connections between the nerve cells and the parts of the brain that we use on a regular basis and the parts of the brain that we don't use on the regular basis. If you have not developed effective strategies for managing anxiety, your brain will not automatically do it. Your brain is going to do what it is in the habit of doing. So if you have the habit of continuing to be anxious and feed into the anxiety and it becomes this terrible feedback loop, feedback, group, feedback, group, feedback, group, feedback, group, feedback, group, feedback, where you just work yourself up into a fit, your brain will continue to respond that way until you learn something differently.
1: So what are some of the ways that you can cope with this anxiety?
2: There are very effective deep breathing techniques such as box breathing. You inhale for four seconds Then you hold your breath for four seconds. You exhale for four seconds. And then you hold your breath for four more seconds. And you continue that that square, that box of breathing for four times. And what that does, Ty, it actually turns off your amygdala. Another technique is yoga. Yoga has been found to really change your brain and calm down your amygdala. Excellent techniques for managing anxiety, just like meditation and various forms of meditation have been formed to actually change the brain, calm down the amygdala, wake up your frontal lobe. So you're much better at thinking and solving problems, making decisions and calming yourself down. So your brain would not automatically learn how to manage anxiety, Ty. It actually has to be trained
1: It's funny that Adia mentions yoga because both my parents are super into practicing it and my mom's even a yoga teacher. It's kind of funny to think part of the solution to my problem was right in front of me all along. My mom says that yoga really helps her when she's anxious or stressed.
0: Actually, something that you might not know, Ty, is that The reason I started doing yoga when I was 18 years old was I ended up in the emergency room having an anxiety attack in New Zealand, and the doctor said, "Um, what you need is yoga. And I was like, oh, okay. And from that day on, I started doing yoga, and as you know, now I'm a yoga teacher for nearly 30 years.
1: That's so fascinating. I have I never knew that. How have you found that yoga has helped you? How have you found that it's relieved the stress?
0: So for me, anxiety is a feeling of not being um, grounded in the here and now. And that is actually exactly what yoga is. Sometimes we could even define yoga as the art of attention focusing on the breath that you are breathing right now. Just this inhale, just this exhale, and not letting your mind drift forward into fantasy or or drift back into kind of memory. And so that's why I think yoga is a really good antidote for anxiety just because it grounds you in the present moment.
1: When you're not like doing yoga, is there ways that you can use these insights into the rest of your life that can also help with anxious times?
0: Absolutely. You can practice yoga when you are chopping the vegetables for dinner. (laughs) Uh, You can just be breathing quietly and calmly. You can um, just ensure that your mind is not drifting forward into your to-do list of what you have to do tomorrow or digging up a difficult conversation from earlier in the day. So it's just that kind of like little moment of mindfulness. So it doesn't need to be something you do on a yoga mat or with certain physical postures.
1: It's kind of amazing that I didn't know that my own mom once had such powerful anxiety that it sent her to the hospital. And yoga has helped her manage, but I know it might not help everybody, or at least it's just one piece of the puzzle. Sometimes if you're going through a hard time or you just can't manage it on your own, it's good to get help from the outside, like talking to a therapist or a doctor.
2: That is where you meet with the psychologist. They'll ask you questions about, you know, your friendships, your relationship with your family members, your self-esteem, how you think about yourself, what your goals are, what things bother you, what things you're excited about. And they help you develop the coping strategies for solving your problems. Um, If you're working with your physician, that's when you may consider prescribing a medication. So there are very safe medicines that can be used to help address the serotonin system in the brain. So your brain starts making serotonin and using it the way it's supposed to, and you're taking care of the biological component of the anxiety disorder.
1: Audia assures me that it's very normal to ask for help. She's been on medication when she had an anxiety disorder before, and she has a psychologist who she calls a partner in her health. But... To be perfectly honest, the idea of therapy kind of freaks me out. I've never been in therapy before, but based on the TV shows and movies I've watched, the client will lie in a long chair and talk while the therapist sits behind them silently, scribbling in their little notepad, analyzing them and trying to figure out what's wrong with them. I guess I don't really want someone to judge me and tell me I'm messed up. I mean, I can just rant to my friends, right? Why would I ever need to spill my guts to a stranger? Maybe it would help if I actually spoke to one of these intimidating therapists. Hello.
3: Hello. Hey. Hello, nice, nice to meet you. Meet nice to meet you too. I'm excited to be making art. Wow, in this my is backyard.
1: This is Phoebe Chin. She's a registered psychotherapist and art therapist. She's young and has some really cool blue hair. To be honest, she doesn't really look like the therapist I was imagining. Beyond regular talk therapy, Phoebe also specializes in art therapy. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I invited her to my backyard, and instead of just chatting about art, we're gonna make some.
3: Paint. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you paint at all on your own time? No. it's oh, okay. I, the little bit of painting
1: I've done is for art class, and it was eh. I liked the, I liked the painting. But the part I didn't
3: like. I asked Phoebe what an art therapy session looks like. Art therapy is um, really simply using another medium other than words to express yourself. So for some, it's easier to use paint or sculpture or writing um, to bring what is an internal feeling into the external. And it can be beneficial in a lot of ways, but obviously because each person is so different, each session can look very different. So for example, if I'm working with someone um, in palliative care, end of life, the things that people are concerned about when they're dying are so different from say, uh, a kid that is going through a divorce in the family. Um, So very broadly speaking, the way that I tend to do sessions is to start by getting a sense of where that person is at, and then deciding what could be helpful in the session. Um, A client that I worked with a while ago, they were really um, concerned about their grandkids being left behind, so we worked together to write a storybook, and they put life lessons that they wanted to leave behind for their grandkids into this book, and we illustrated it together and bound it into a book. And that helped that client to feel better about leaving this world and leaving that behind for their, their grandkids.
1: How have you seen art therapy work for some of your clients?
3: Mm. I think the main, the main thing that I've seen recently is that it allows you to go to a place with your mind and your body where you're perhaps less uh, self-judgmental, where like the inner critic voice is a little quieter you get to use a language that um, is really personal to you. It's not a language that you can necessarily um, translate into words very easily. That that makes sense, because instead of talking,
1: like if someone's really shocked or they're having a really hard time, I mean, even putting it into words for them to understand yeah. their self, it's a lot easier to just... Mm-hmm. you know, Drawing is just kind of like, it taps into a different part of your brain. Yes. Right? It's- In her sessions, Phoebe doesn't quietly psychoanalyze her clients. It's more of a conversation and she lets herself react to what they're sharing. It's like they're collaborating together on an art project.
3: Some therapists prefer to be very distanced and not show or express or even let themselves feel that they've been affected by their client. But I work with people that tend not to respond well to that kind of therapy, so um, I do let myself feel things during session. Could you tell me more about the different kinds of therapy? Mm -hmm. There's so many different kinds. Um, So in terms of talk therapy, there's many different modalities. You might have heard of DBT. There's a lot of acronyms. Um, But the main ones would be psychodynamic, which is like Freud stuff. Then there's um, humanistic. There's feminist, there's um, systems or family therapy, um, there's CBT.
1: CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, has been researched extensively, so that's what a lot of mental health professionals recommend. But it's also more important to find a style or therapist that works for you. If you can't get help from professionals, Sometimes the only thing you can do is get support from your community. That's the reality if it's hard to access mental health care, but also if you or your friend are still figuring it out and working up the courage to tell other people about it. So, I mean, is there, is there any difference to like, talking to, th- to a therapist than when you're just kind of like ranting to a friend or something because like mm. I kind of feel like that's the that's the closest thing I have to therapy just like when I have a rough day so I get on a call and he's yeah. like you okay and then I yeah. just accidentally unwind 15 yeah. minutes of
3: ah yes some word vomiting yeah um the main difference really is that you're talking to someone that's completely removed from your own life So the benefit of that is that it's someone that can be unbiased. You don't have to worry about offending them or worrying about, oh, if if I tell this person something, they might tell the person that I'm complaining about. Um, And it's completely kept in that space. You don't have to worry about it, like what you say, going anywhere else. Um, And then of course, if a therapist is worth their salt, they'll also be trained to help people feel comfortable with being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I like your illustration, by the way. Oh, just thank you. On a small little side note, it's uh, taking on a life of its own. Yup. It matches my hair.
1: To be honest with you, for most of this painting session, I've been working on a tiny, fiery painting of a Dorito. And it's taken me a while to let loose and just scribble whatever I want. Mostly because I'm not really confident in my artistic capabilities. So, one one issue I see with art therapy is that, I mean, at least for me, I, I'm not a big fan of art. I kind of have this anxiety when doing art, like I'm worried that like, I, I don't think I'm very good at it. So, yeah. is there anything about art therapy that can accommodate for
3: non-art people like me? Yes, absolutely. And that's a really great question because most of the people I work with aren't regular art makers themselves. Oftentimes when people bring that up with me, I just like to bring that out in the open, talk about it, just name that it can be really stressful to make art, but have a commitment to try and just see what happens. Usually does the trick. <laughs> I often can find
1: myself in these bouts of anxiety, right? So like, do you think,
3: do you have anxiety too? Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely, absolutely. What do you like to do when you, like, start to feel really anxious? Mm. I like to, um, do sensory things. So, for me, I really enjoy, um, going on walks. That helps me to be more in my body. Because I think when I'm very anxious, I, I'm very in my head all the time. So doing anything that's sensory, like taking a long hot shower or um, lighting candles that I can stare at or painting, doing things that incorporate my body, that helps to distract me a bit and re-center myself. My my favorite sort of on-the-go anxiety grounding technique is doing the Like, there's different numbers for it, but I use four, three, six breathing. So you breathe in for four counts, you hold it for three, and then you breathe out for six.
1: My mom and Adia both mentioned breathing, and now Phoebe, too. Who knew this thing I do literally all the time could be so hard?
3: It's, It's not something to sort of mandate the way you breathe. It's just another way to sort of distract your body from focusing just on the anxiety. you know
1: I love math and science, which means I love to solve my problems, you know, work really hard in a question, and then boom, solved and mastered. But after talking to Adia, Phoebe, and my parents, anxiety doesn't seem like something I can solve completely. It's something that will probably keep coming back for unpleasant visits every once in a while, and every time it does, I'll get to learn a little bit more about how to deal with it. And Whether it's learning new skills, talking to my friends, or maybe getting a professional to help at some point, I guess learning to live with anxiety is a big part of being human, just like breathing is. Speaking of breathing, before we go, do you want to try
2: something with me and Adia? We're gonna do this four times, ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, inhale. One, two, three, four. Hold your breath. One, two, three, four. Exhale slowly. One, two, three, four. Hold. One.
1: Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tai Poole. This show was produced by Judy Zee Gu, Eunice Kim, and Rachel Levy McLaughlin. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Graham MacDonald is our sound designer and our digital producer is SK Robert. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Special thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his assistance and my friends Maylin, Finn, Piper, and Caden for telling me about their hard times and that it's not just me. Our sound engineer is my baba, Min Nguyen, and location manager is my mama, Nikki Poole. Thanks for being there for me and telling me new things about yourself. Today, my guests were Adia Spinks-Franklin and Phoebe Chin. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. Four. Last one. Exhale.
2: One, two, three, four.